Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. First, we will briefly preview this weekend's election in Poland before turning to the EU's response to the ongoing crisis in Israel. We'll also talk about uh, the future of U.S. security assistance to Ukraine. Then we will turn to a conversation with Tara Varma, a visiting fellow with the Center of the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. Uh, We'll talk about the state of French foreign policy and the big meeting that happened this week between Olaf Scholz and Emmanuel Macron. But Donetian, let's turn to Poland and the upcoming election that's happening this Sunday. It's probably one of the most anticipated elections, I think, of, of the year. What's going on? What's the state of play? Yes, highly anticipated election on October 15th in Poland. So the current government led by the nationalist right-wing party Law and Justice has been in place since 2015, if memory serves. And has slowly since then eroded a lot of the basic rule of law checks and balances that we've come to expect of at least European democracies, U.S. democracy. That comes through primarily changes in the judiciary, slowly making it more political and more beholden to the government of law and justice in particular. Relationship with Brussels has been really difficult for a few years now, partly because of those rule of law challenges but also trying to block some decisions that require unanimity at the European level, sometimes aligning with Viktor Orban as well. There have been conversations, too, around um, civic rights and LGBTQ rights in Poland. And this is a government that's really leaned heavily into the traditional values discourse, the church, and fighting back against, you know, the decadence of the West overall. So EU-Poland relations have been pretty difficult. This took a little bit of a break, I would say, last year when the full-scale invasion of Ukraine broke out, Poland was very forward-leaning, both with Brussels and with Washington, on wanting to help, on sending equipment to Ukraine, on welcoming a lot, a lot of Ukrainian refugees, and before that, Belarusian refugees as well, when we saw the uprisings there. Since then, though, there's a much more complicated picture. You and I have talked about this grain deal problem Poland, especially this government, a lot of its base is farmers in the more rural areas in Poland. And the government has taken an increasingly negative stance towards assisting Ukraine with the shipment of grain through the European Union versus through the Black Sea, where it's blocked at the moment, and really fears an imbalance in the agricultural market. So it's just putting up a lot of barriers to this responding primarily to political incentives in the country. On the other side of law and justice party, we find civic coalition, and that is Donald Tusk, um, who is leading this party. And he was the former president of the European Council, so very Correct. pro-EU. Pro-EU. And for years now, law and justice has erected him as this creature of Brussels and someone who's way too liberal for Poland, et cetera, et cetera. Law and justice is pulling at around 36% and civic coalition at around 30%. The balance of seats in the House uh, is to be determined. I don't know that we'll see a clear majority after the election on, on Sunday. 
But there's a strong hope around a lot of Europe, and I think in the United States as well, that ideally civic platform would perform really well, would try to get back a lot of the moderate votes that he has lost in the past because law and justice has been so forward leaning on its right wing platform, also on issues of values, etc., including abortion, which for which there have been a lot of protests in Poland in the last few years. But it is hard to tell. The reason why we tend to see this as a pivotal election is because we've had two governments of law and justice at this point. And learning from just off the top of my head, Hungary, we've seen that uh, it, this is not just a statistical, just overall, a third term really allows you to entrench some of the decisions you've made on breaking down the rule of law, on creating networks of patronage around yourself as well on the economic front and making the relationship with Brussels even worse. And at the same time, potentially with Washington because of the government's stance on Ukraine, a visa scandal that hit in the last few weeks about some of the contractors that they're using for a lot of the refugee visas that apparently have been given to people who are not Ukrainian, not Belarusians from a lot of other places, pretending that they have certain qualifications, for example, filmmakers, but none of them are. But then they're in the Schengen area. They can go on to Germany. They can go on to the U.S. as well. The United States has raised those concerns with Poland. So everyone is looking at this election as a potential way to bring Poland back from the brink and avoid having, to be perfectly honest, a second Hungary in Central Europe. No, I think right right now, when it comes to U.S.-Polish relations, it's sort of, in some ways, sort of, the relationship has sort of never been stronger because uh, President Biden has has now been to Poland twice, once to give a big speech in Warsaw after uh, the war in Ukraine broke out, and then, of course, to go again in order to travel to Ukraine. But the relationship has been quite close uh, over Ukraine. However, you know, if you sort of go back in time to when law and justice, you know, took power in 2015, it was then Deputy Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken. I remember this because I was in the State Department going to Poland and sort of raising concerns about potential, you know, the threat of democratic rollback. If you look at Barack Obama gave a speech uh, at the UN uh, in 2016, raising concerns of democratic rollback, where he uh, called out Hungary and Poland and was quite uh, significant at the time. And then, of course, you had the Trump administration, which then sort of put those concerns of democratic rollback to the side. Trump's first time he stepped on European soil as an American president, was actually in Poland to give a big speech in Poland before uh, attending the first NATO summit in Brussels, where he was going to declare his allegiance to Article 5 and then 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 somehow did not during, during the speech. But we've had this kind of back and forth where Democratic administrations, maybe center-right uh, Republicans here, have real concerns about the political direction uh, in Poland, but yet then parts of uh, the Republican Party, at least the Trump administration, had very good relationship. And I think the concerns about democracy, democratic rollback, has sort of really taken uh, a back seat over since the war in Ukraine. But that's not really been the case in Brussels. Brussels right now is holding back billions and billions of EU money uh, that they're refusing to let go. And I think the concern that the uh, rollback of the rule of law is a real issue. And you saw this actually in the in the the one and only presidential debate that happened in Poland was basically you know state-run television effectively moderating the debate in favor of the government and basically giving the opposition sort of no time. Apparently, Politico did a good write-up where they noted each candidate would have one minute to speak. And oftentimes, the the, the biased questions from the moderators took more than a minute uh, to deliver. But to be clear, though, I will just done something that's important to say. 
we talk a lot about Poland and Hungary. I think a lot of observers and people on the ground in Poland remain a little more optimistic about the civil society in Poland press as well. I mean, this debate was clearly a problem, but I think there's still a lot more independent press in Poland than there is in Hungary at the moment. The civil society organizations are still more potent than yeah. they are in Hungary. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think the big question is after the election, you know, does Poland, so let's just say law and justice remains, does Poland sort of return to, you know, its strong support of Ukraine? Is this grain deal fight, you know, it seems really driven by the fact that there's a lot of discontent in rural communities and, and the and the law and justice paying attention to that just as any, you know, uh, government would to the to an important political constituency. You know, does the Ukrainian-Polish relationship sort of get back on track? I mean, I tend to think it would. However, it's unclear about the the Polish EU relationship. There's a lot of money that Poland needs to be unlocked. They're unlikely to do some of the same sorts of things the Hungarians are doing, for instance, in in holding up a Ukraine aid. But there, there's a lot in play in this election on Sunday, so we'll be watching very closely. So maybe we'll turn to talk about um, the the crisis in Israel and and maybe just sort of focus a little bit on on the EU response. Really recommend going to some of our our uh, sister podcasts. You can check out Babel, our Middle East podcast, to to really track uh, what's going on with this really horrific attack on on Israel by by Hamas. We won't get into the kind of nitty gritty of, of what's going on. Uh, there's better places for that. But I want to sort of look at the EU's response to what happened. There was a lot of confusion over EU foreign policy. And I think in some ways this uh, crisis demonstrates that the real difficulty and challenge that the EU has putting together a cohesive foreign policy. I just had a, a, a few thoughts. The first is that I actually think some of this is is overstated. The the big thing that happened was that the Hungarian uh, commissioner for enlargement, Oliver Vahelyi, said on Twitter on Monday that the EU was suspending uh, all payments immediately to the Palestinian territories. Now, this is important because they use one of the the main sources of aid to Israeli occupied Palestinian territories to the to the Palestinian public. This is a Hungarian commissioner for enlargement. So there's been a lot of concern about why is a Hungarian in charge of enlargement, especially when you're talking about countries like Ukraine, where there's you know issues between Hungary and Ukraine over language laws, but also the EU's neighborhood, which then includes uh, Israel and Palestine. So you know he puts out a tweet saying that basically the money is suspended. Now we have to go back and remember that Viktor Orban, despite a lot of his anti-Semitism towards George Soros, is also, uh, you know, uh, a close, close friend of, close friend of Bibi Netanyahu. Netanyahu. And, you know, the reaction is not like, uh, you know, inexplicable. They were responding to uh, a really tragic event, and it's a quite, in some ways, reasonable approach. But the problem was he just tweeted it and didn't coordinate with, it seems like, the rest of the folks in the are, commission. Are you saying the European Union does not speak with a single <laughs> with voice a sing on yes. foreign policy? No, so this is, this is the big challenge where... The commissioner in charge is not really in charge, and this has to be a collective EU decision with all 27 members, with Josep Borrell, with von der Leyen and others. And then you had uh, a, a sort of immediate response from many uh, Arab governments, from many other EU governments being, wait, 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 hold on here. We actually think that our aid to the Palestinian Authority, not to Hamas, uh, but to the Palestinian Authority, helps support stability. A lot of governments in the region support that. And I think the Israelis aren't necessarily, you know, knocking, you know, saying that you should cut off all funding to the Palestinian Authority. And so that then led to the EU putting out sort of conflicting tweets, conflicting statements. They just had 
um, a meeting, uh, a foreign policy meeting today. Uh, we're recording this on, on Tuesday, October 10th, where the EU said, no, 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 we're not going to cut off all our funding. We are going to review it. And so they changed the language. So I think, you know, it didn't show a lot of clear coordination. It shows the, the problem of, of the EU actually doing the basic blocking and tackling of foreign policy of, of getting everyone on the same message, putting out clear statements. I think what we've seen is the EU, when there's a crisis like Ukraine, it can rally together and be very strong. A crisis like this, which is not sort of directly impacting uh, Europe, uh, so to speak, then requires more time and coordination that you may not have in a crisis. And there isn't necessarily the clear sort of coordinating function. And I think you have a commissioner here where, you know, if you look at the U.S. government, well, everyone's sort of nominated or appointed to be by the president to be part, especially at the senior level. And here you have a bunch of commissioners, basically, that are sometimes more loyal to their member states than to actually being on the same page with the commission. Well, to be clear, commissioners are supposed to give up that allegiance when they become commissioners. I understand it's very hard for them to do that. I mean, talk about Thierry Breton, best example of this. But that's that's the expectation. And for the commissioner to put out a statement like this before von der Leyen, who is the president of the commission, I think is quite striking. I think another element is not just that the coordination function was not as clear this time, is these are 27 member states with very different approaches to this particular issue. There are different levels of relationship between some EU member states and Israel versus others. There's a lot of variance in public attitudes that some of these leaders have to reckon with among, let's say, if they have much larger either Arab or Muslim populations versus larger Jewish populations. They're going to be different voices and they're going to have to deal with very different political incentives. And I will note that, you know, there was a joint statement put out by the U.S., U.K., France, Germany, Italy, but that sort of in some ways speaks to the strong transatlantic position uh, on this. Lastly, it does sort of demonstrate the basic challenge of uh, the EU conducting foreign policy and that if it's going to do more on foreign policy, which I think it has to, and this is where von der Leyen pointing to it, it being having a geopolitical commission really needs to move to, is that, look, you can't put your neighborhood policy in the responsibility of, uh, you know, the enlargement commissioner because you're viewing enlargement as if it's essentially a domestic policy action, which in many ways it is, but you know, it's not like Palestine is you know, a prospective member of the European Union. Like this is core foreign policy. And yet it's some commissioner not really connected to the high representative. And it demonstrates to me that really there's a real need for EU reform for, you know, perhaps like a European EU security council for perhaps the, you know, the high representative to just be called the minister of foreign affairs and be empowered in that way and to move in that direction. And there are conversations about this. And the last thing is the qualitative majority voting for foreign policy, where you can then make decisions more quickly uh, because you don't need to have everyone on the same page for the EU to actually say something. Maybe quick transition to just talk briefly about the Ukraine security assistance. Uh, so there's an effort. Uh, speaking of neighborhood speaking and enlargement. Speaking of neighborhood and enlargement. There's an, you know, a real problem right now with U.S. security assistance to Ukraine. We've done a lot on that in our program here at, at CSIS, and you can uh, recommend the uh, discussions that we I did on it with Maria Snegovaya on our sister podcast, Russian Roulette. We also did an event on it on Friday. But the, the basic rub is that the House of Representatives and 
is in a degree of chaos. It's There's a real question. And when I say question, it seems somewhat unlikely now that Ukraine security assistance will pass. Now, it's not dead. There's different angles. One angle is now tying Ukraine aid and aid for Israel together into one big package, which is a fairly routine budgetary thing. But the basic problem is the House of Representatives that the majority party the Republicans, that there's a portion of the Republican Party that is against Ukraine assistance, like vehemently against it, meaning that a Speaker of the House would have to bring to the floor a vote that divides his party. And no Speaker wants to do that. And there is no Speaker right now. And there is no Speaker right now. Well, you know, it's we're recording this again on Tuesday. Very important because who knows? <laughs> Maybe there will be a Speaker by Thursday. Seems highly unlikely. Uh, but right now there's no Speaker of the House. So I think the point here for Europe is that America may go AWOL. You know, every, I think Europeans were concerned about 2025 and, you know, uh, the you know if there's a second Trump administration. Well, you know, you have House Republicans right now sort of bring the Trump administration here uh, where U.S. funding would be blocked. And let's be clear, there's no magic wand that the president can wave if Congress does not provide funding or authorization for the president to just, you know, do whatever he wants. So the aid will dry up. The munitions that we're pulling from U.S. warehouses to Ukraine will dry up and everyone's going to be turning to Europe. So the money for Ukraine that is before the European Commission is proposing, I would suggest, despite seeming very high at 50 billion euros and the effort to create a new sort of special Ukraine fund under the European peace facility. So Ukraine security assistance, all great. You're going to need more money and you're going to need to execute it very quickly to really get industry pumping because right now it's not quite pumping at the level it should be. And, and European warehouses of equipment are, are basically depleted. So this is a real problem. It is. It's important to say just on the U.S. side, the um, John Kirby, NSC spokesman, did say, I think sometime last week, that there's about five billion or just a little more still left to be expended on assistance to Ukraine that can seem like a lot, but that's about it's a few like months. Two months. Yeah. Maybe to Christmas. It, yeah, exactly. And as you said, there's not a ton of support in parts of the Republican caucus on this. I think the public support numbers is a lot more nuanced than a lot of the headlines that we're seeing. It's not as dire in terms of support as we see. It's just more complex when you look at the detail. A lot of Republican voters actually support sending more help to Ukraine it becomes a little more difficult when you're specific about the money and what kind of equipment, et cetera. But that's where the leadership in the Congress and in the administration needs to come in. I could see a scenario potentially positive where Democrats and Republicans who support sending more aid tie all of these things together for assistance to Ukraine, sending more to Israel as well and the border funding, et cetera, if they can make a package like this that basically doles enough out to all of these different uh, different political formations, that is the positive way out of this for now. I, I totally agree. The basic dilemma, though, is that any funding bill that probably includes Ukraine is going to lose a number of Republicans and therefore will be dependent on Democratic votes. And that's fine. And that's frankly the same issue about how the government will have to be funded as well. So it's really a question of what new speaker, you know, do they, are they going to lay on the tracks and oppose Ukraine funding because they need the support of the far right to stay in office? That's kind of the way it looks right now. So we, we will see how this plays out. So with that, we'll turn to our interview with Tara Varma. We 
We are thrilled to be joined by Tara Varma for a conversation about the state of French foreign policy. Tara is a visiting fellow with the Center of the United States in Europe at the Brookings Institution, where she follows French defense and security policy closely. Until December 2022, she was a senior policy fellow and the head of the Paris office of the European Council on Foreign Relations, or ECFR, where she followed French foreign policy and European and Asian security developments. Tara, welcome to the Eurofile. Thank you so much for having me. So maybe we'll start with what happened uh, this week uh, between uh, France and Germany. There was the Franco-German summit. This is supposed to be an annual thing. I don't think it happened last year. When this was a summit in, in Hamburg, there was a great photo of of Olaf Scholz forcing uh, Emmanuel Macron and his uh, and his wife to consume, uh, a, a, I guess, a Hamburg staple, a fish sandwich. <laughs> and, you know, there was lots of memes about about French food and German food. But that seems to be kind of the main achievement of of this of this summit. I mean, what's going on in Franco-German relations? And am I misreading what happened this week? I don't think you are misreading it. Um, Franco-German relations have been complicated for a while now. Initially, a lot of commentators put that on the difficult personal, supposed difficult personal relationship between Macron and Scholz themselves. But I think this goes beyond that. Franco-German relations have never been easy traditionally on any given topic. Uh, the French and the Germans are on either side uh, of the political spectrum. And I think we're seeing these tensions rise right now. That's been true since COVID. And I would say it's even more true since the beginning of the war in Ukraine. We disagree on energy policy, particularly with the nuclear element. Uh, we don't agree on security and defense. We don't really agree on the economic side of things. I should say here that, of course, Germany is struggling right now internally because of the traffic-like coalition. And of course, the time that they spend negotiating their own internal agreement, then they come to Brussels and they feel like they've actually done, <laughs> they've done the heavy lifting of everything internally, but they still need to sell this and to present this to Europeans. So that doesn't help. I think that this particular moment in internal German politics doesn't help either. But it is true that we are struggling to find the middle ground. Once again, the relationship has gone through a variety of phases. It's been difficult in the past. It will probably be difficult in the future. And generally, what happens is that we do come to a breaking point where actually both French, the French and the Germans tend to find a middle ground. And it's not that this unlocks everything in Europe that's gridlocked, but it is true that when the French and the Germans come together and they present a united front, it's easier for them to sell the rest to the Europeans. And the Europeans can disagree or agree with it. But at least it clearly when the French and the Germans are divided, things don't move forward. I think that's the big element. And so this Franco-German uh, ministerial council didn't happen last year. Um, there was supposed to be a state visit by Macron in Germany, which was canceled because of internal French demonstrations. So we've also seen how both French and German internal domestic political situations have influenced the Franco-German relationship and thus the, the European security and foreign policy decisions. Maybe we could go through some of the the areas of, of difference. I think energy policy, okay. The French are, you know, have really invested in nuclear. The Germans have have pulled the plug on on nuclear, uh, quite literally. But then on defense, what 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 were the issues concerning defense policy? What what's what are the divisions there, and what what were sort of the challenges, and why couldn't they kind of come up with anything? I think there's a profound misunderstanding and misconception in France about Germany's attitude and and conception of what security and defense is. My sets, having now worked on this for a few years, and I find that also pretty evident talking to German scholars and experts, is that for Germany, the transatlantic relationship is first and foremost in guaranteeing Germany's and Europe's security. 
This is not true for France. I mean, I think France is still very much in a mindset where it wants to be able to defend itself. France alone would not be able to fight a high-intensity war, so I just need to put it out there. But the sense that the military is very developed. There has been a huge increase um, in the defense budget this year. Now it's up to four, 413 billion euros. Um, we have nuclear deterrent. And so there's a sense that France wants to be able to do things its way, but also to Europeanize a number of these discussions. And so we're talking about actually putting these discussions in two different frameworks. And I think the French want to do this in a Franco-German setting, in a European setting, and they seem year after year to misunderstand that for the Germans, this will happen again, first and foremost, in the transatlantic setting and within NATO. And so you really see how the French and Germans come from different sides, even when it comes to developing um, security and defense within the EU, the German prefer to do it in the framework of the European institutions to do, you know, the, to do PESCO and the European Defense Fund, when the French like to put out initiatives as the European intervention initiatives, which come out of these frameworks, are supposed to be more flexible, more nimble. And so we also come, again, from these different perspectives, which means that also in reality, if you look at the future combat air system, if you look at the future tank, these industrial projects that were supposed to be done bilaterally, I'm not even talking about, you know, a multinational program, just this bilateral, binational programs, they have not moved forward because we come from different conceptions. And that is also fine to admit. I think we do need to admit when there are difficulties to be able to move forward. But the fact of the matter is, is also here, if we are not able to move forward in the Franco-German setting, then I'm not too hopeful, unfortunately, for the rest of Europe. So we do need to be able to get past these. There needs to be clearly political will. There's been reluctance, let's be clear on that, on the industrial side, both French and German. So one option might be to maybe decide that these projects have not been moving forward enough and to let them go and to build actually... Uh, new projects on the impetus that we're seeing now since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, where Europeans have been able actually to mobilize themselves, to overcome a number of taboos, to have discussions about security and defense in a way that they hadn't, honestly, in the past 25 years. And also to understand that because the political dynamics are changing in Europe, you do need to involve the Baltic states. You do need to involve Poland, which is going to become a huge military actor in Europe. And of course, have the French and the Germans there, but it's not just about the Franco-German dynamic. The challenge that if there's sort of delays, for instance, on the, the, the future European tank, well, then what tank are the Europeans supposed to buy? And that's where you then start to see them turn elsewhere. And so the, the delays here, I think, are, are challenging perhaps to the future of the European defense industry. I'm curious. So you said you're not too hopeful if the Franco-German engine can't push some of these initiatives forward. You're not very hopeful about what Europe can move forward on. We've seen Macron change his tune on his relationship with Central and Eastern Europe. Do you think that plays, that impacts this assessment that you have? Is there room for, let's say, France to have a different kind of coalition to move some of these projects forward? And Germany, from what we've seen before, tends to want to follow once there's a big enough coalition in Europe, then they say, okay, well, we have to be on board. Do you see room for that? I hope that there is room for that. That would mean that the French are also capable of envisaging an industrial project, a very long-term industrial project with 
partners other than Germany at first. I think you're right. I hope that Germany would join it if it were to come through. But we're seeing, I think there's a lot of suspicion still on part of Central and Eastern European partners about this French proposition, how we could move things together. I'm really surprised, I mean, in the French-Polish relationship, how much, I mean, how it's underused, underexploited, because actually France and Poland have ambitions for Europe. They don't have the same perspectives, but they clearly want to have a big industrial defense industrial base. They see how important it is. And somehow we've not been able to harness at all this energy for a variety of reasons. But I think, I hope that if Germany saw that there was some energy, some impetus coming from elsewhere in Europe and actually new types of coalitions, I think that would be helpful. I'm also hopeful that actually a number of Central and Eastern European countries will come up with these propositions because that's also why in the end, we, we, also, we always rely on the Franco-German uh, tandem to provide this impetus because we're not seeing alternative propositions. And, and I think that is important too. What we've seen, and that's clear to me since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, is a change in the European foreign policy debate. It's not just about what France and Germany want and think. Actually, a variety of actors and member states have been putting out proposals. I'm thinking of Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kelas. She was the one to say, well, let's do actually a joint acquisition of ammunition and missiles that are destined to a country that is neither a member of the EU nor a member of NATO. This is honestly something that is unprecedented that I would really not have expected until last year. And I would not have expected it coming from a country that says all the time our security is guaranteed by NATO. This proposition was made for the EU inside the EU. And I think we're seeing things move. And I'm, I'm quite hopeful that people also inside Europe see the EU now as an actor who has a responsibility when it comes to be a security provider. That is a massive shift in terms of what has been happening. So as an observer of French foreign policy, do you have the same skepticism, might be a little strong, or doubts that some Central and Eastern European nations have towards this apparently change of mood at the Elysee on the relationship with Central and Eastern Europe and enlargement overall? Do you think that's a real shift in Macron's thinking, or is it a little more instrumental because he sees that short-term challenges, that's the only way to get through? I think it's both. I think there is a shift, but I think he's also being opportunistic. I think he also sees that actually it's the moment for the shift is now if he wants to convince people to do more within Europe. He's understood now that you can't just keep people at bay and think that even if they believe that everything security wise has to happen in the framework of NATO, you can't just repeat to them that this will not happen. And so I think he also he's using the shift uh, for himself domestically. Also, I think there is big pressure on him in France to demonstrate that the EU delivers for its citizens, that it's not just this massive bureaucracy far away, well, not so far away from Paris, that people don't understand that is disconnected from ordinary people's preoccupations and lives. And so he wants to show that actually the EU is here to protect people. And if he can do that by reaching out to Central and Eastern Europeans, I think that's good. I do think the speech that he gave in Bratislava in, in May this year was a very strong speech because he apologized on behalf of previous French presidents and previous French policies, something that generally Macron doesn't do. He do doesn't <laughs> no, apologize for himself and doesn't apologize for others. I think it was a strong show of humility and atonement. And again, something that he's not really known for. So I think he wanted to demonstrate that he did that there. But once again, I mean, I guess the proof will be in the pudding. It's not just about giving speeches, even though the French really like to do so. He will have to demonstrate that he's serious about it. If he can come up with policy proposals about building a defense industrial base, building an EU that can be a security provider, actually 
coming forward with scenarios also of what happens in the case of a Trump to administration next year and an, or, you know, an administration in the US that is not so intent on its commitment to guaranteeing the security of Europe, again, for a variety of reasons. I think if he can have new partners for that, that doesn't mean exclude the old ones, but actually have new ones on board, I think that would be absolutely crucial. Again, at a time where there'll be European elections next year, it's there's going to be a huge test for Europe's capacity to act. Uh, and we're talking about what Europe can do now, but we're also talking about the enlargement phase. And so Europe needs to demonstrate that it actually can deliver for its citizens at 27, let alone if it's you know going to be 33 or 35 in, in less than a decade. This is what we're talking about. So I think he's I mean, I haven't spoken to him about it, so I can't tell you how sincere he is. But having looked at his policy, having looked at how much he reached out to Russia, how invested actually he was in, in reaching out to Russia, building this rapprochement reset and coming all the way he has. I mean, now he has to stick to this. That's what I'm convinced of. It strikes me that in 2022, when the Ukraine enlargement conversation sort of first began, Macron, and, and it wasn't just Macron, it was also then Prime Minister Draghi, said, okay, well, we need to do treaty reform, we need to look at reforming the EU. And then when the response was utterly negative to that, Macron's reaction was, well, it's going to take decades with a, a portal for Ukraine to become a member and was sort of the skunk at the at the party to some degree. It seems like the Bratislava speech was, was a pivot, was also recognizing that if Ukraine, if the EU is going to enlarge, that uh, it also means the Western Balkans. So we're talking of an EU more than 30. So instead of being sort of negative about EU enlargement, how it's never going to happen, saying being very positive and saying, oh, yeah, but there's this other thing we have to then do, which is reform ourselves. I don't actually think there's been a huge amount of shift, but it's a re- seems like a rhetorical tone. I guess my question for you is how much energy and enthusiasm now is, is emanating from Paris about reforming the EU to get for, ready for enlargement. Is this kind of a new driving force within within Paris? So I just want to say something on your first point. Yes, I please. do think there's a shift in terms of France's positioning on enlargement. In 2019, France was pretty adamant that there would be no enlargement before reforming the EU. What we're, the shift that we're seeing now is basically consistent in saying We'll have to do both. Now, we've basically the biggest geopolitical decision that the EU made was at the June 2022 council when it said that it was going to grant candidate status to Ukraine and Moldova. And now it's a question of implementation. And we're in basically in the debate phase of how we implement this. The French European Affairs Minister and the German European Affairs Minister, Laurence Bounin and Anna Lorman, they asked a group of scholars that they call the Group of 12 to come up with propositions. They've been working on uh, this report for several months. It's come out uh, a few a few weeks ago and it's available on, on a number of websites. I do encourage actually our listeners to check it out because they come up with a number of proposals that two ministers have already said that they don't, they're not going to use all the recommendations and that this was, you know, an expert report and discussion. But I do think it's interesting because these these experts have actually found a way to reconcile this huge tension between do do we reform first, do we enlarge first, and to say we are going to have to do both simultaneously. And they say this will lead to a multi-speed Europe, a Europe at differentiated speeds. Which, to be honest, is already happening. There are a number of member states who are in the Eurozone, a number of member states who are in Schengen. There are also non-EU members who are in Schengen. So we know that actually the way Europe is formed, it's actually formed to do relatively complex and complicated things. And so it can come up with frameworks in which there are different levels of integration. 
if we are indeed talking about enlarging to Ukraine, Moldova and to the Western Balkans, then I think a differentiated EU is probably the way it's going to happen. The one thing that the EU needs to do, and it's one, I would say, main geopolitical tool is the single market. So this is when it comes to Ukraine and Moldova first, um, the EU will have to come up with propositions to make sure that it's Yes, enlarging and strengthening its single market at the same time. It's it's going to remain its strongest tool, particularly when dealing with the rivalry with Russia and China and others. I think that's going to be absolutely key. And so we're looking at how the EU wants to do that. Once again, this this was a conversation that could not have happened a year and a half ago. We're talking about it now. It's basically history in the making. Nobody has a perfect answer to it. We're looking at it. I'm quite reassured that European governments are also going to experts and listening to their propositions, saying that they will not talk, take them all in, but at least engaging in the debate and that there's an open debate about this. I think that is also pretty helpful. December 2023 is when uh, the EU will formally say whether it's actually opening these accession talks or not for Ukraine and Moldova. Everything can happen. There can be black swan scenarios as we're seeing. But I think we're pretty much on track to say that the, the accession discussions will be open and that now the way Europe and Ukraine's fates have been intertwined is something that we can't really walk back or roll back. And so it is in the EU's interest to make sure that Ukraine wins, that Ukraine is a country that said in being part of the EU, being part of the single market. I mean, they, we're actually having all these discussions. It's hard to know when the war will end, how it will end. But the fact that we're all the while the war is ongoing, having these discussions and having actually pretty serious discussions also about internal reforms in Ukraine and Moldova, I, again, I would not have expected. So I think that is also a phase where yeah, I guess the EU is, uh, how do you say, in American walking and chewing gum at the same time. And I think just thinking about the single market, the internal challenges, these are crucial things that have to be figured out now before before we enlarge. But also they're, they're not at their ultimate stage with 27. The sing single market has multiple elements to it that are unfinished and still need a lot of answers even without the conversation around investment screening and expert control that we want to add on top when it comes to China and other adversaries or whatever they call them these days, like systemic competitor something, yet still friend, whatever. And I think about the banking union in particular, there's a lot of things that still need to be figured out. There's no fiscal policy, but we have a monetary policy. All of these things, we still can't get it to the final stage, or maybe there's no final stage, and that's the beauty of it. But if we can't do that at 27 already, there's no way we do it at 33, 34 in an orderly fashion. I'd love to expand this since I just mentioned China and you talked about other actors before to France's ties to non-European members or neighbors. First with the U.S., I think in observer land, there's been a lot of mention that the relationship the U.S.-France relationship is a little bit strained over the last few years. There are different uh, differences of opinions when it comes to China in particular, presence in the Sahel. Um, what, what's your assessment of the current state of the relationship and the personal relationship as well between Joe Biden and uh, Emmanuel Macron? I think when Joe Biden won, there was a sense of relief in France, uh, as in many other European countries, though I do believe that Macron was one of the European leaders who actually tried to 
work with Trump as much as was possible. He was also actually quite clear in his mind that the U.S. is the indispensable ally and you have to make it work with the person in the White House, whomever that may be. But of course, with an administration that was not going to tweet that you, you know, you were a foe and uh, that you were going to combat the EU and to impose tariff and to impose a visa ban. I mean, you know, we're talking about a, an extremely strained relationship between the US and the EU that France felt the repercussions on. But at the same time, France was the actor that had the strongest military and intelligence cooperation inside the EU with the US. So also a sense that you had to make it work because we needed it um, from the French point of view, particularly in the Sahel and the Middle East. And particularly after the UK's departure. Particularly after the UK's departure. And so in that sense, AUKUS came as a massive shock in September 2021 for the French. I think that was really, I think it broke part of the trust on Macron's side. And, you know, Macron is perceived as a very French president, erudite and, you know, very focused on Frenchness. But I, I think he's also one of the presidents who speaks perfectly English, is probably much more open to the world in a variety of ways. And he was, I think, very shocked that this happened under a democratic administration. And there was a sense that if a U.S. partner under a democratic administration was going to do that to us, then... We probably needed to prepare exactly for any type of scenario. And I'm not sure that he's really recovered from that. A number of initiatives were taken. He, he's, he knows how to be opportunistic. So he kind of, when the state visit was organized and he came to the U.S. last year, um, he managed to, you know, also reset U.S.-EU security dialogue, make sure that in the communique, it was mentioned that it was in the U.S.'s interest, that there's European strategic autonomy and that either Europe needs to be, you know, a stronger actor on the international stage. So he also, I think, used that moment, but it did, in my, to my sense, did break part of the trust that he had. And I guess also scared him because then if this can happen and basically under any type of, the, of U.S. administration, then yes, all bets are off. But also Europe has no alternative in terms of um, guaranteeing its security. So I think there was AUKUS just before AUKUS. I was thinking um, there was the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was also organized in such a way. I mean, it, you know, again, I understand things from a U.S. perspective. I think from a French and European perspective, there was real dismay at how things were done, even though they were announced, you know, planned. And I mean, it's not like this. The U.S. was clear that this was going to happen at the end of August 2021. But yet the way things were done, how it affected populations on the ground, but also European citizens on the ground, I think was pretty traumatic. And so basically the sequence where you had Afghanistan, uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan in August 2021, and then a few weeks later, the announcement of AUKUS did feel like something that was also changing the U.S.'s role in the world. Something that actually Macron has been talking about and warning about for a long time, but he... I think because he has a certain method and a way of doing things, is uh, he doesn't manage to, I think, make his message come across, particularly to European partners in the way that he would want. But he has been saying that there is a, it's not just a U.S. withdrawal, but, a, you know, a reprioritization of U.S. priorities, which, of course, is uh, what the U.S. can and should do. But it will probably come to the detriment of the Europeans. And I think he has that in mind very much. He does. I don't think he wants the U.S. out, quite the contrary. I guess he wants the U.S. in, but he is the one saying, well, the U.S. is also telling us as Europeans that they are reprioritizing. So we do need to listen to what they're saying. And they're not, I'm not at all equating uh, a Trump administration with the Biden administration. I think they're doing things absolutely differently. I don't think we could have done what we've done in Ukraine without U.S. political military leadership and support. So I, this absolutely needs to be clarified. But there is still a sense that even under this administration, 
Europe will not be the U.S.'s priority. And so we do need to prepare for that. And he's one of the voices in the desert kind of saying that right now. And so he, you know, again, I think the U.S. remains the indispensable ally, but you do need to prepare for what happens next. And he's, I think he's trying to do that all the while, not alienating the U.S., which is not a comfortable position. Well, Tara, thank you so much uh, for being here. We could go uh, on because there's so many other topics to, to discuss, but, but thank you for coming on The Eurofile. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. If you enjoyed our conversation today about assistance to Ukraine, the different uh, political events surrounding aid to Kyiv, a lot of global impacts of this war from how it impacted Russia's ability to conduct the war, the transatlantic community, uh, economic sanctions, etc. please consider registering to our executive education course, which is titled Beyond the Battlefield, Global Implications of Russia's War in Ukraine. The course is taking place in early November and the registration closes on October 18. If you are an experienced professional working on these issues on development, defense or international security, I think this will be perfect for you. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Sarah Stromberg and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.